HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street. Do you need a conference room for your next meeting? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast. It's Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Teresa McCullough, the beer historian at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Teresa about beer how beer and brewing fits into the bigger picture of American history, and we'll hear Teresa's joy a moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always... We launched the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Did you know Julia Child liked beer? She may have been more closely associated with wine, but she drank beer too. Of course, she preferred good beer. Writing in her memoir, My Life in France, Julia noted that when she and her husband Paul lived in Germany, they really enjoyed the German beers, which their American peers at the time eschewed as too heavy. And as Jacques Pepin recalled in episode 49, during the filming of Cooking in Concert, Julia was meant to pull out a bottle of wine. A major winemaker was the sponsor. But she famously surprised everyone, including the producer, by pulling out a bottle of beer, just to underline her independence. Two other things Julia really appreciated are craftsmanship and culinary history. Bringing all of these elements together is our guest today, Teresa McCullough, 
officially a curator in the Division of Work and Industry at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. Unofficially, she's the beer historian. She curates the Smithsonian's American Brewing History Initiative, building up an archive of American beer and brewing history. Yes, she's got the horrible job of traveling around the country, hanging out with home brewers, craft beer makers, and sampling their wares. In case this doesn't sound like a serious job, Teresa has not one, but three degrees from Harvard, and is also a culinary school graduate. So when it comes to beer, she's not messing around. And as our listeners know, the foundation works closely with the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, the home of Julia's Kitchen, to support its annual Smithsonian Food History Weekend. It features the presentation of the Julia Child Award at a gala that raises money for the museum's food history programming. And it was just announced that Chef Jose Andres will be the fifth recipient of the Julia Child Award presented at the gala. So naturally, food history extends to drinks, including beer. So much so that typically, every food history weekend features the option of beer pairings at the gala dinner, and also ends with a signature after-hours event on American beer. In the tradition of Julia, you drink something, learn something, and have a good time. Teresa joins us today to enlighten us about the intriguing and surprising sides of American beer and brewing history. Welcome to the podcast, Teresa. Thank you so much, Ty. And welcome, everyone, to our first episode focused entirely on beer. We might veer from that a tiny bit. So, Teresa, when the Smithsonian announced it had hired a new beer historian, the news kind of broke the internet. So, do you have the best job on earth? <laughs> I, I think I think I possibly do. Yes, and uh, you know I was as intrigued as everyone else when the job advertisement was posted, and uh, it just seemed like uh, almost too good to be true for a scholar and for someone who loves food and drink to be able to to work and study this topic. And uh, it's just been a wonderful ride since I started here. So maybe we should get a little more serious, and you should describe for those who are lining up to uh, try to steal your job, what's actually involved in being a beer historian? Well, I like to say that um, my work has uh, a few different um, phases in it, that, uh, you know, sometimes what I'm doing is researching and collecting the history of brewing and beer in America, and then also I am sharing it with the public. And so it's a a kind of a two-part process in a lot of ways. And so, as you mentioned, yes, a lot of my time is spent not at my desk. I'm traveling around the United States and just having the wonderful good fortune to meet with brewers and growers and maltsters and teachers and all the many different kinds of people who compose this uh, this very dynamic industry. But then the second part of that is to think about how to convey that uh, those conversations and the experiences that I have with a very wide public, whether that be uh, everyone from beer enthusiasts to industry members to scholars. And I'm kind of assuming that since you are an actual historian and you're working at a premier museum, that there, there's a methodology or you're not just willy-nilly reading a, a news post or a tweet and then being like, oh, I'll go there. there. I assume you have some sort of map or kind of r- at least rough game plan that you're following? That's right, yes. And so, you know, when I arrived here at the museum in um, January of 2017, I spent some time getting to know our collections. What did we already have here in the museum? And I found that we have uh, a very rich collection of um, brewing advertising materials and brewing equipment, uh, even sheet music uh, of 
beer drinking songs. Most of these date from the late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, but beyond that, uh, there was clear um, ability to expand our collections. And so I developed with my curators here a collecting plan to think about how could I go about collecting and documenting the more recent history of beer and brewing in America. And my job has a, a special focus, which is to pay special attention to the homebrewing clubs and what we know as craft beer, the craft brewers in the United States today. Um, these are the figures who have really started our most recent era of brewing history, what we've come to know as the craft beer revolution. And so, uh, I, you know, it's it was a, a big task, but it's been a wonderful challenge to think about how to document this industry that has grown uh, to upwards of 6,000 breweries, uh, which is far more than we've ever had in our nation before. Uh, and so over time, um, my strategy has evolved a little bit, and uh, the approach that I, I've been taking is uh, to, as I travel to different cities or regions of the country, I try to get a, a cross-section of the brewing culture of that area. And so maybe that means I speak with uh, a couple brewers who are longstanding, who have been brewing for a couple decades in that particular place, but then I also really want to speak with brewers who uh, maybe just opened a couple years ago and are really experiencing this competitive moment in in a very different way. Maybe I want to speak with uh, someone who writes about beer in that area or teaches brewing or is malting the grains that a brewer uses. And so I'm trying to kind of circle around the topic and get at it from a variety of different angles. And is it a kind of 50-state approach or are there really, you know, sort of the preconception is like Colorado, maybe Northern California and Wisconsin, mm -hmm. but is, is that misguided in, in thinking that it's limited to certain states? Well, um, no, it's it's that's not misguided at all. I, you know, in thinking about how how and where I should begin, I did think, you know, being a historian, let me start at the beginning. And so my first trips were to the Bay Area of Northern California, to Central Colorado, um, to the Pacific Northwest, to Seattle, because, um, you know, historically those were the epicenters of early microbrewing and homebrewing and craft brewing culture. Um, however, the 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 history and culture of beer has really expanded very much to include uh, the full scope of the United States. And so other trips have taken me to places like um, Pittsburgh and Cleveland and Chicago, um, Milton, Delaware, Lincoln, Arkansas, and um, great beer can be found in all corners of the United States now. And, you know, in a way, it's interesting for me as a historian to see because uh, this is almost a throwback to uh, 1800s, the United States, when breweries were very much um, part of American cities uh, that in a way that we no longer really see today. And so uh, we're almost experiencing a return to the kind of pre-prohibition um, state of brewing in America with a, a multiplicity of very small breweries serving very local audiences. So since we're on this topic, let's talk a little bit more about what led the Smithsonian to decide, hey, we should have an American Brewing History Initiative. And so maybe you can talk about like sort of why that happened and, and then what's the goal? Well, as I mentioned, uh, you know, the, the collections here at the museum, they're, they were rich, but uh, somewhat limited at least in terms of time period and the, the kinds of resources that we could offer to the public and to scholars, you know, whether that's in the form of exhibits here at the museum or to researchers who, uh, you know, are eager to come into the archive center or to storage rooms here to look at the objects and the documents we have. And, um, 
very fortunately, the museum ha- relies on the support of a group of scholars and professionals in the food and drink industries. Uh, one of these was uh, Kim Jordan, the uh, former co-founder and CEO of New Belgium Brewing Company. And she, in conversation with curators here, um, wondered about the possibility of um, beginning a new collecting initiative to really enhance our collections and expand them into the current era. And so um, my position exists thanks to a very generous gift from the Brewers Association, which is the not-for-profit trade group that supports um, independent and and craft brewers. And and so they have really um, encouraged my my research into this realm and, you know, made it possible for our collections to expand into this new arena. So let, let's dive deeper on that. I think one thing that's helpful that I'm curious about, and I'm, I'm curious how, how you're going to answer this question, but I, I think that all ties into why is beer significant in American history and culture? Obviously, there's a belief that it is. What, what have you found or, or what's your take on, on the why of it? Well, I always like to say that beer is incredibly useful to me as a historian. It's, you know, I see it as a, a lens, a tool that's very malleable. It's almost a, a prism. You know, you could look, you could look, literally look through a glass of beer and refract it through it, see any event or any theme in American history and, and use it as, as a, a means to talk about it. And so whether you want to talk about the history of immigration or, um, the evolution of our transportation networks or changing consumer tastes, you know, beer is relevant to all of those things because beer has been part of our history since before we were a nation. Uh, Before Europeans arrived on this continent, uh, indigenous communities brewed fermented beverages with corn and a variety of uh, fruits and other plants. Uh, When Europeans came and colonized North America, they brought ale brewing techniques with them and Early and Americans of the early republic and um, and the colonial era drank beer, uh, mostly brewed by women and enslaved people. Uh, and then beer continued to be present as the decades passed. Uh, German and Czech immigrants in the mid-19th century brought lager brewing techniques, new ways to produce and consume beer. And uh, and so it's just it's true if you trace the entire history of this country, beer has always been present in one form or another. So so I think you're saying you, you almost can't extricate it. It's like kind of part and parcel of the entire story. That's true, sure. And, you know, even when I'm, I'm speaking about this early era, especially in the 1600s, 1700s, um, Americans uh, very much looked, and Europeans too, looked to beer as not just um, more healthy than water, more of a healthful choice. They saw it as something that was truly nutritious, almost more of a food uh, compared to, to water. And um, and so it's something that has long been um, perceived as a, a healthful beverage, a social beverage, and uh, in a lot of respects that continues up to the present day. Hmm. So let's take a, a step backward. And just personally, I always think it's interesting to, to, to hear from guests like how they arrive. So what got you interested personally in studying brewing history? Well, and in this, it's, it's interesting. It's a really, um, for me, it's a very perfect combination of, of my scholarly and professional interests, but also my personal experiences. Uh, I came to this position having written a dissertation um, in American Studies about the food and drink industry in New Orleans, and I used um, places of food production and consumption in that city to ask questions about race and ethnicity and gender. And, you know, I've always just been very interested about um, what are the stories that we tell each other about ourselves and about our history through the lens of food and drink. 
uh, in addition to that, I grew up with a home brewing dad, and I have memories of being a kid and helping him cap bottles in our kitchen when I was seven or eight. Um, his family is from Milwaukee, you know, one of the great brewing centers of this country. And so he grew up with beer as uh, just, you know, really um, important part of social experiences and of, of social life. And so um, that was part of the kind of, um, you know, personal background to my interest in this subject. And when the museum was searching for someone to, again, do do the research and oral histories and ask these big questions, historical questions through the lens of beer, it seemed uh, kind of like a natural fit um, between the two things. A happy marriage. And so you're how many years into it? It's relatively new, but not brand new, right? The initiative is it's two and a half years old. Um, It began in January of 2017. Yes. And so just out of curiosity, so what's happened? You were talking about all these changes and evolutions and how far it goes back. But I think Milwaukee is so associated with beer. Where is Milwaukee in the mix sort of today? Well, Milwaukee, like a lot of other um, major cities in this country, is is, um, very active on the uh, you know, on the, on the front of craft beer. And when I, when I say the word craft beer, it's, um, you know, it's an interesting term that we use now uh, because it's, it's uh, something that was uh, invented in our somewhat recent past. In the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, Americans used the term microbrewing rather than craft brewing. And that was because um, these brewers who were um, founding small breweries at the time, they, they really identified and banded together because of their small size. Uh, and our current era of brewing history, it, it really begins with the repeal of Prohibition in 1933, because after Prohibition, it was only the, the very big breweries that had been able to to wait out the dry years. And it was in reaction to the the fairly bland styles of beers that they were brewing, at least in the eyes of many Americans at the time, uh, that these smaller brewers got their start. And so places like Milwaukee uh, and other places that I visited, such as um, Cleveland or um, Denver or Seattle or Portland, Oregon, um, these all really became important centers of a new era of craft brewing, even if a lot of them had also been centers of uh, the previous styles of brewing in, in earlier eras. And and was a lot of what was made or what is shaped sort of American beer and particularly the big brands that people know, whether it's Coors or Bud Light or um, Pabst Blue Ribbon, was actually a lot of that not about sort of a corporation saying, well, we're only going to do this, but was it very much in relation to the regulations that were passed by prohibitionists and, and at other points. And so it, the market was actually formed a lot by these legislative rules. That's, that's, that's very much a part of it. Interestingly, though, um, you know, when, when, um, when we talk about the, the lighter lager styles of beer that are brewed by a lot of these um, very big breweries, um, those styles really developed first out of consumer demand. Consumers wanted very light-bodied refreshing lagers. And so breweries would um, add certain ingredients to the the mix, such as rice and corn and things that would really kind of, um, and wheat, things that would lighten beers, give them lighter bodies. And, and, you know, today, um, some writers might look at, look askance, uh, you know, if you have a, a beer, including ingredients such as those, but that really actually began with consumer demand. And um, very big breweries like Anheuser-Busch and Coors and Miller, 
they very much perfected the brewing technique to make those styles. And uh, it's it's actually quite technically difficult to make a really good, clean lager beer. And, uh, you know, I've spoken with craft brewers, um, even including Ken Grossman, who, who founded Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, who, when he was starting out in Chico, California, um, in the late, very late 1970s, early 1980s, he talked about um, trying to think about, you know, what kind of, of niche he wanted to fill as a brewer. And he looked at breweries like that and thought, you know, they those breweries have perfected those styles. I, I can't do that. I, I want to do something different. I'm going to fill it, fill, fill the niche with something else. And so, um, and those very, those light bodied lagers, they continue by far to be the most popular um, beers that consumers reach for on, on market, supermarket shelves. So um, it's an interesting combination, yes, of, of distribution networks and legislative um, acts that have, you know, shaped the brewing industry that we have today, but also consumer taste. I see. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk to Teresa more about her latest brewing discoveries. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, that provides offices, co-working, event spaces, and a brand new podcast recording room. Have you been dreaming of starting your very own podcast in Brooklyn? You can now rent space in 100 Bogart's custom-built podcast room to record interviews, voiceover, and commentary. The room is fitted out with two microphones, mixing board, and a MacBook Pro running Pro Tools. You can rent the space by the hour, and a rental of an hour or more includes a 100 Bogart co-working pass. That means complimentary coffee, tea, and access to your own desk for the rest of the day. So what are you waiting for? Get started on your next audio project. 100 Bogart has the space and amenities you need to kickstart your podcast. Learn more at 100bogart.com or call their team at 718 718- Three six two three five three nine. Welcome back. We're talking to Smithsonian curator Teresa McCullough, who leads the American Brewing History Initiative about all things beer-related in American culture. So we mentioned this before. I kind of like to think of it. You finished what might be called like one big national pub crawl, which is not really what you were doing. <laughs> but um, tell us tell us a little bit more about your collecting trip. What were some of your favorite or memorable finds from from the your most recent trips? Well, I have to say that um, you know, as much as I love being here in D.C. and as I sit here talking to you, I'm looking out my west facing window at a beautiful view of the Washington Monument. As wonderful as it is to be here in the museum, I, I think you know, really, my my very favorite days are when I can get on an airplane or get in a car and go out and really meet the people who are in the midst of this industry and who have had just incredibly creative and entrepreneurial careers, you know, it's always a complete uh, honor to be able to sit across the table from, from these people and ask them, you know, what, what has, what has led them to do what they've done and, and how have they gotten there? So I have traveled uh, all around the country, um, you know, from West to East and back again. And, um, it's just come across some really wonderful stories along the way. And so, um, Yes, it's always a thrill to collect objects on behalf of the Smithsonian. And, um, you know, as, as a, a few of them I could name, you know, one of them that um, has attracted the most attention in the brewing world, at least, is this wooden spoon 
that was donated to the museum by Charlie Papazian. And uh, Charlie Papazian has come to be known as the father of American homebrewing. He is originally from New Jersey, studied nuclear engineering as an undergraduate at the University of Virginia in the late 1960s. Uh, But when he was an undergrad at UVA, he had an acquaintance who was homebrewing beer in the basement of a preschool um, there in Charlottesville. And he tasted a sip of this beer and it was just a complete revelation to him and you know it's this new world of flavor and it was enlightening to think that he could brew beer himself at home like that and so after college after he graduated from UVA he moved out to Colorado and just began this wonderful career not as a professional brewer he never opened a business but he's always been a teacher and a writer and so he has become just well well loved and well known as um, really America's homebrewing teacher and so he wrote a homebrewing manual. He founded the American Homebrewers Association, the journal Zymergy, and he bought this wooden spoon uh, at a store out in Boulder, and he used it for decades to uh, homebrew himself, to teach others how to brew beer at home. And you know, over the years, it just developed this wonderful patina of use, and it, it, looks, it looks like it's been used for decades. And so um, he donated this spoon, which he calls his charismatic spoon, uh, to the museum here and even gave it a going-away party in Boulder before he mailed it east. And, uh, you know, think, objects like that, um, to understand that they have been uh, used and loved and valued by people who have done really transformative things with them. That's exactly the kind of thing that we love to collect here at the American History Museum. So it's sort of like a beer-making magic wand? Exactly. Yes, it is. And uh, and it, it is honored as such by by people in the brewing world. You know, if you even if you're a home brewer who is just starting out, you know, to think that you might be able to to come to the American History Museum here in Washington and to see Charlie Spoon. I mean, that's, a, I think, a really inspirational and exciting thing for a lot of people uh, who are interested in beer. Great. And are you also doing oral histories when you do these travels with some, with some people like Charlie? Yes, yes, I am. And that that is uh, truly a wonderful aspect of the job. You know, when I talk about sitting across from these um, interesting and entrepreneurial people, it's it's often with a recorder in between us. And so it's a it's a very important aspect of my collecting to record oral histories with people in addition to asking for these objects and documents uh, for donation. And so um, I've it's, again, just a, a gratifying part of the job. I've recorded oral histories with uh, 71 people so far, and I'm scheduling more all the time. And these are professionally transcribed. The transcriptions and the audio will be housed by the Archive Center here at the American History Museum. And I hope these will serve as a, a new reservoir of uh, research material for, for scholars and for enthusiasts who are interested in this era of brewing history. And in these oral histories, what different types of, I assume they span the gamut of people doing different things in in the world of beer and brewing? They do, right. And so, you know, I began with brewers, but very quickly thought, as I've mentioned, that there are so many other people who make this industry whole. And so over time, I've expanded the reach of, of the scope of the different kinds of people I speak with. And so, you know, I've, I've spoken with people um, like Twyla Souls, who is the, uh, she's an artisan maltstress at a very small craft malt house in Wellington, Colorado called Grouse Malt House. And she 
only malts, gluten-free grains. Most most of them are destined for gluten-free beers. Um, other other interesting people I've spoken with include Frank Clark. He's the master of historic foodways at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation in Williamsburg, Virginia. Uh, over time, he has he's a completely self-taught brewer, uh, but with techniques and ingredients from the late 18th century. And he brews beers there in Colonial Williamsburg um, using ingredients and recipes uh, and equipment that one would have used um, during during the colonial era. Um, there are also people like Liz Garibay in Chicago, uh, Illinois, who um, she she is a museum professional, but branched out to begin a series of walking tours. Um, she calls History on Tap, speaking about Chicago history through the lens of beer and especially through bars and pubs in the city. She's working hard to um, to found a new museum in Chicago that she's named the Chicago Bruseum to tell the brewing history of that city. Uh, but she also uses history as a tool out on the street uh, to engage with people in that way. So, uh, you know, the, just the, the variety of people you could speak with who are thinking about beer and enjoying beer and working with beer is really endless. And did you get to taste the, the way that beer, can, can one go now and have a, a colonial era beer at Colonial Williamsburg? You can, yes, you can. He he makes beer to drink, and uh, and so um, he he bottled a, a strong ale um, shortly before my visit, and he he holds the the beer there in in Williamsburg, and uh, and I did get to taste a little bit of it. Yes. And does it taste anything like a modern craft beer, or does it taste like nothing else? Or that that particular beer was interesting you know he so he ages it in wood barrels um which brewers are doing now you know one of the newer trends in craft beer is to age in um wine barrels and liquor barrels and uh and so he cautioned me that it might be a bit effervescent it would be a term uh when i when i opened it uh you know it was sealed with a, a cork but um it, it was a a delicious beer, I would say. It had certain winey characteristics, and being a strong ale, you know, higher alcohol um, by volume, and so it, then the the beer develops a bit of a kind of viscosity that a lower alcohol beer might not have. Interesting. So I love that you wrote this article. I think it was for the Washington Post about you know breaking down like five top myths of. Uh, beer in America. And I thought maybe we could talk about doing some myth busting. So could you go through those? Like, what are the most common myths about beer in America? Well, when I when I started to research for that piece, I knew one of the first things I wanted to write about was this myth that beer is a man's drink. And, uh, you know, that that has been a relatively recent phenomenon, uh, the figures that men are the primary producers and consumers of beer in America and the United States. It's, it is true today uh, that you know approximately 75% of uh, people who say they are weekly beer drinkers are men, um, but that's something that's developed for specific historical reasons. You know, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, women uh, were the primary brewers of the household in the earlier years of our nation's history. That's because brewing was a domestic task task, much like baking bread, you know, is not something that uh, was glamorous or profitable in any way. And that that did all change in the mid 1800s when immigrant brewers who were primarily men came to this country and converted brewing into something that was profitable. It was a profession that was done in very modern uh, factory type facilities uh, out in American cities and in the industry of American cities. And so um, once it became a profession that 
could earn capital, that's when it converted from prim- primarily a masculine task, or, sorry, feminine task to the, the more masculine realm. Um, but concurrent with that, and then moving into the 20th century, breweries really made a decision to advertise primarily to to men, to, to men as consumers. And that's not to say that women disappeared from the scene, but um, especially after Prohibition, women were identified primarily as the shoppers. And so brewers needed to appeal to women, um, but more in terms of the convenience and appeal of their packaging rather than um, to women as, as drinkers themselves. So the you know, as I as I write, the history of women related to beer is arguably just as long, if not longer, but has been more likely to occur outside of the public eye. I see. And then should we talk about the craft beer myth? I think um, there's this belief that it's very new or very recent, but but that's a bit misleading, right? Right. Well, uh, yes. And that's also, you know, we, again, we look at American cities and we see this explosion of breweries and tap rooms. And, you know, wherever listeners are, you might be living in a neighborhood that has a new tap room or has a new one in, in the works. And uh, the the pace of growth in the very recent past, meaning the last 10 years, has been truly astonishing. And as I, as I said, you know, we have upwards of 6,000 breweries in this country today. But if you look at the um, Alcohol Tax and Trade Bureau, the number of permits that they issue to breweries and planning, it's currently over 10,000. It's it's just incredibly high. And so there's, there's a, there are many more breweries in the works that we even see today. Um, but what we see now is really the result of uh, changes that first began in the mid-1960s among these collectives of homebrewers or individual homebrewers who wanted to um, try to brew at a smaller scale in response to what they perceived as uh, the very unexciting output of these very big breweries. And so we are now several generations into uh, impulses that really began in the mid-60s rather than a decade ago. And do you see this as something that's probably just only going to continue to to gain steam as part of the kind of food revolution? Well, it's, that's an interesting question, and it's one that I always ask brewers as I travel because uh, you know they they are really wading through the midst of what is coming to feel like a really uh, competitive time in beer. You know, ten years ago, I think uh, fifteen years ago, there was this this re- real high that, you know, there's a sense that we are kind of cresting a wave or approaching the crest of a wave. But, um, you know, now there is a question as to some writers and and other uh, figures who are looking at the brewing industry are speaking about a bubble or wondering, you know, about saturation points. Uh, You know, I, I do think that there, we are swinging back in this very interesting way to, to the pre-prohibition world of beer in which there are, um, very small breweries, um, small tap rooms that aim to serve a very local clientele and don't actually want to expand to become regional in size. They don't want to package their beer in cans or bottles uh, because once you get into the world of packaging and distributing and growing and maybe adding multiple locations, they see that as uh, as you know eating into their profits. And so they find a more profitable model being one uh, in which they do stay small and cultivate this real sense of um, community or a kind of embedded attitude toward the neighborhood in which they live. And so it's it's very interesting for me as a historian to watch what's happening and to wonder about what will come. 
Yeah, that's interesting because it's sort of uh, it, not exactly in lockstep, but very similar philosophy to the slow food and local food movement that, you know, the, almost an acceptance that the beer you get in the Carolinas will be different than the beer you get in the Pacific Northwest or even Portland um, or in the in the Midwest or in Chicago. And that the idea that actually that could be a really good thing, that we don't need a national beer that's uh, the same everywhere. Very much. No, that's very much the case. And, you know, I think in our world today, we assume that we can get whatever we want within two days. You know, we have Amazon Prime shipping and, and, you know, we assume that even food and drink, it's something that's easily crosses state borders or other boundaries and we could we can have whatever we want from wherever we want it. But that's definitely not the case with beer. And that's largely due to uh, how the distribution network evolved, especially following Prohibition's repeal. Beers are cannot be available everywhere. That the the idea of region or kind of local identity is incredibly important to beer. And so wherever I go, I speak with brewers who are brewing with very local ingredients, uh, or uh, you know, per, again, purposefully serving very local clientele. They don't let their beer be available beyond a uh, state line. For example, New Glarus Brewing Company in New Glarus, Wisconsin, they purposely made the decision not to distribute outside the state of Wisconsin. And that ha- that ended up being an incredible decision for them from a, a business perspective because they've developed into this um, cult brand that's so well-loved in the Midwest and in Wisconsin. And their identity as a brewery is now totally wrapped up in their the extent to which they are so firmly entrenched in the state. Um, but uh, yes, it's, it's very exciting for me to to hear about the kinds of ingredients that brewers might use or a sense of seasonality or, um, you know, when consumers are really looking for something innovative and new and different, they're they're likely going to reach for a brewery that is serving them as, as local drinkers. Yeah, well, I think that's all quite exciting to uh, think about. So beer also has, um, as you were talking about as part of the American Brewing History Initiative, has kind of a starring role, I think, more so than than maybe people might expect at the Smithsonian's annual Food History Weekend. So tell us a little bit more about what's been happening every year and hopefully this year as well in November um, around beer at the Food History Weekend. Sure. So our annual uh, Food History Weekend here at the Smithsonian's American History Museum, it's, it's a very exciting event for us to host as curators and as public historians because it's this weekend-long uh, series of events where we can really have a, a series of very rich interactions between um, professionals in the world of food and drink and the general public and scholars and journalists. I mean, it's, it's a, a, a place, it's a time and place where we truly invite everyone to come to the table and to have conversations uh, revolving around a particular theme. Uh, and so this fall, uh, our theme is power through food. And uh, we are welcoming um, Chef Jose Andres as the winner of the, the Julia Child Award, which is a, a great honor for us. And, um, this fall as well, yes, as you mentioned, brewing history is going to uh, be one important component of the weekend's events. Um, uh, the, the evening of Friday, November 8th, we will host Last Call, which is a wonderful evening uh, event, um, and we're planning for a conversation moderated on stage in the theater here at the museum. And the, the purpose of, of that particular evening and also the larger weekend will be to 
welcome the public into our refreshed food history exhibition here at the museum. Um, our very popular exhibit on the ground floor, which is where Julia Child's Kitchen lives, um, a curatorial team and I have been refreshing the content uh, for the last uh, several months, and a new portion of the exhibit will be dedicated to brewing history and more specifically to the stories of these early um, microbrewers and early home brewers who initiated what we now know as the craft beer revolution. And so um, on Friday, November 8th, I'm extremely excited to say that I have been able to uh, assemble a true, truly star-studded lineup from these early years. And so um, on stage for a conversation, uh, I will have um, Fritz Maytag, who revitalized Anchor Brewing Company in San Francisco in 1965, um, Ken Grossman, who founded Sierra Nevada Brewing Company in Chico uh, a decade and a half later, Michael Lewis, who's a professor emeritus of brewing science at the University of California, Davis. He taught many brewers, um, including Ken, including Fritz, and many others who founded their own breweries at the time. Um, Jack McAuliffe, who uh, founded the first from scratch microbrewery in Sonoma, California in 1976. And then Charlie Papazian, who, as I mentioned, is the father of American home brewing, um, currently living in Boulder, Colorado, as he has been for several decades. And so it's a, it's a truly very special evening to put them all into conversation with each other. Uh, and I'm, I'm so excited to share that with the public. And one other exciting thing happened after that conversation, right? Well, so, the, yes, we'll have the moderated conversation, and then we will have um, tastings uh, from the brewers present. And uh, as as in all iterations of this last call event, it's a really special opportunity to be able to taste the history that we have just discussed. And, and uh, that's just such a wonderful aspect of the larger Food History Weekend is to to have these conversations, but then to also taste the food and the beer and the wine that, uh, you know, that make this history so rich. And so we'll have, um, we'll have tastings for the public, but then also the exhibit will stay open and we'll welcome the public in to see the, the new materials that we have in there. Well, that sounds like a really exciting time, and uh, we hope that listeners will be able to join every, both of us on November 8th at The Last Call. Yes, we we welcome everybody. And so, as I mentioned, you're only unofficially the beer historian, that you actually do have a wider curatorial role. Are there any key highlights or when you're not collecting or thinking about all things beer that you're working on? Do Do you only do food and beverage or are you doing things outside of that as well? Well, um, so I'm a, I'm a curator within the division of work and industry, and so uh, my purview here um, relates in large part to collecting this history of American brewing and craft beer. I work with a larger curatorial group refreshing this um, food history exhibit, and we, in that exhibit, we focus on technological and cultural and social changes that impacted what and how we eat. Um, but beyond that, yes, you know, being a, a public historian of of American history is something that um, is is part of my my job here at the museum too. And so, you know, whether that relates to public programming or or talks that I I am delighted to give or in classes that I teach, you know, it's it's something that this is a place that allows me to kind of um, stretch and flex and work through through all of those um, larger topics as well. And beyond that, I am I am writing a, a book. I'm converting my dissertation into a book um, related to this history of food and drink in New Orleans and about the kind of um, the stories that we tell ourselves in in places where we eat food and enjoy drink. 
Yeah, and certainly New Orleans stories are so deeply connected to, to food and drink. They are, yes, yes. But maybe the same could really be, I'm sure everyone listening was saying, well, where I'm from is very connected to food and drink, too. <laughs> That's true. I, it, yes, I mean, just as just as you can look at beer or at wine and, you know, learn histories and stories about all places, you know, it's, it's very much true in New Orleans as it is elsewhere. Okay, after the break, we're going to hear Teresa's Julia moment. Are you a beer lover? Do you know about any moments in American beer history that are Smithsonian-worthy? Let us know. Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. We'll be right back. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we asked our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Teresa, what's your Julia moment? <laughs> well, I, I, I want to thank you for asking this question because um, it brought back some some wonderful memories for me. Um, so as I've mentioned, I went to Harvard for my undergraduate degree and also my graduate degrees. And I worked for Harvard Dining Services for three years. They have a, a food education project called a food literacy project. And so I managed their farmers markets and, and worked with the chefs there on campus. And that's just to say that my time in um, Cambridge was uh, fairly extended. I lived there for about 10 years total and was very much steeped in food. And um, during those years, you know, I knew I knew Julia Child through her through her cookbooks, of course, and uh, and have memories of making her beef bourguignon in our little kitchen up there in Somerville, um, specifically because the recipe prompted me to buy a bag of pearl onions, which is not something on my shopping list always, but which was a a, a delight to buy. Um, but beyond that, I, the neighborhood where I lived there was Julia's neighborhood, and so as I learned more about her and read a little bit of her writings, I would go jogging and I would run on Irving Street and I would stop in front of the house where she lived. And, uh, you know, I just remember stopping on the sidewalk and looking past the bushes and, you know, knowing where her kitchen was located and thinking about the meals that had been cooked there, or the you know, the people who visited her there. And right around the corner um, on Kirkland Street is Savener's uh, Market, which is where she she bought the meat that she um, cooked with uh, on her show and at home. And on the sidewalk, she's traced her initials into the wet cement. It says Bon Appetit JC. And, uh, you know, again, it's just a, a personal touch, you know, knowing that she was standing there and did that in that place. Um, but even beyond that, you know, walking through Harvard Square and, and there's a beautiful um, corner storefront, which used to be Design Research, which is a, a really innovative um, design store. And I, I believe the store helped furnish the the kitchen that she used uh, for for her cooking show on set. And so they would sell things, you know, like beautiful and functional casserole dishes and gadgets and Merrimacca fabrics and, 
and then just down the street from that, the, the Schlesinger Library, which serves as the home to Paul and Julia's papers. You know, I just I felt steeped in the the, the place where she lived. You know, beyond just her her books and her writings, and uh, so knowing that she had trod those paths, you know, just helped me helped me think a bit about what a an innovative and exciting world that that little corner of Massachusetts must have felt like, you know, from a culinary perspective, but also an intellectual and social perspective in the years that she and Paul lived there. So um, it's always, you know, I've, I've felt that connection to her in addition to, you know, in the kitchen. Well, and it's like a string that tethered you right to D.C. to follow her kitchen into the American History Museum. That's right. No, it's, uh, yes, it's just such a, it's such a special uh, artifact to have here, and um, I, you know, it, it never gets old to watch how visitors interact with the kitchen, and to be able to peer into peer into her kitchen and look at the magnets on the fridge, and for to know the the, the businesses that are represented by the magnets, and to see her phone books there, and to you know think back to that milieu where where she lived, where I lived, where many people spent time, and uh, it's just it's a special thing. Well, that's really lovely. That's all the time we have for today. So, Teresa, thank you so much for joining us and and talking all things beer and sharing your Julia moment. Well, thank you, Todd. And uh, I'll look forward to seeing you in Washington in November, if not before. Yes, of course. Looking forward to uh, being there. And we're looking forward to welcoming all of you because, of course, the great thing about the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History is that it's for everybody and everyone's invited. That's right. All right. And thanks, everyone, for listening. You can always follow us on social media and to to keep up on news about the Food History Weekend. Both uh, the foundation and the museum will be uh, talking about it plenty. So um, you search at Julia Child on Facebook or at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram. And it's at Julia Child JCF. And I'm at T. Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N on Twitter. And if you want to learn more about everything that we've been talking about in terms of the food history exhibits, the collections, and these upcoming events at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, you can go to americanhistory.si.edu forward slash topics forward slash food dash history. And there are links to the Food History Weekend, Brewing History, and all these other events on that landing page. And on social media, you can look for at American History on Facebook and at AM History Museum on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Teresa's Twitter handle is at Teresa, it's T-H-E-R-E-S-A-M-C-C-U. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Selkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song, New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please remember to give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show, and even better if you can do it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.